Bega Valley Shire Library acknowledges and pays respect to the traditional custodians of the lands, waterways and airspace of the Shire in which we live, work and play, the Yuan and Monaro peoples. Hope, loss, resilience is a podcast series exploring how people stay hopeful, how they deal with loss and the resilience that binds the Bega Valley. It focuses on community experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm Craig Garrett, a library officer with the Beaker Valley Shire Library. Earlier this year, I began interviewing people across the Beaker Valley on the far south coast of New South Wales about their experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic. While there was a clear shared experience of the pandemic, different parts of the community also came up against unique challenges. Each episode of Hope Lost Resilience explores a different theme fire, health, education, family, community, business. While there's been a lot written about the impacts of COVID on young people, there's been fewer opportunities to hear directly from young people themselves. This episode looks at education. What's school like when no one's at school? What did students do? What did the teachers do? What challenges did younger and older high school students face? We explore these questions and touch on the lives of young people more broadly. But first, Let's hear from local poet Gabrielle Journey-Jones. Born on sovereign Gadigal land, Sydney, and from Maori and African-American bloodlines, she reflects on how water ties people and country together as it weaves through time and space in Twofold Bay, Eden, on Thawa land, Yuan country. Aquanullius, nobody's water. First Nation families, custodial responsibilities, caretaking waterways, respectfully farming the sea. Aquanullius is a fallacy. Attuned to ancient knowledge, 60,000 years of offshore technology has always been practised here. Aquanullius is a fallacy. Interconnecting ecologies flow from mother mountains, rivers and lakes to sacred beaches, delicately woven on you and country, thriving under traditional administration. Aquanullius is a fallacy. Communing with the moon, travelling Thawa tides, fishing the whale road, casting the strong, salty nets of their ancestors deep and wide. gathering sustenance for the tribe with gratitude and balance for all that the ocean provides. Aquanullius is a fallacy. My name's Clinton Meredith, and I'm a, a teacher at Eden Marine High School. The kids were asking a lot of questions in January at school. They were watching the news pretty closely and following the, you know, the, the events in China. They were mostly concerned as with some sort of you know, black plague and that everyone would die. So you just sort of talk through the mortality statistics and explain things to them, and you know, they hear a lot of information on the news to try and make them make sense of it. Freya, I use he, they, she pronouns. Hi, I'm Neve. I use they, them pronouns. My name is Fionn. I use she, her pronouns. 2019, 
I'd just gotten involved in some school strike movements as well as, well, the fires happened. Pretty much the same in my boat, but I was, we were doing a lot of group activities. Like I was in a dance school and we were always doing like contact lifts and stuff like that. And I was doing gymnastics and music and everything. My name is Luca Yi. I grew up in Bega, but I've spent the past couple of years coming uh, up and down from Bega and Sydney because I was doing the HSC in Sydney. Before COVID, I was homeschooled. And then my mum started a law degree as a mature age student. So all of a sudden she was a lot busier than she used to be. With COVID, the strain it put on everybody just worsened that. And uh, once that had cleared up enough for us to be out of the house, then my sisters went to school and I then went to school next year in 2021. All of my parents' time was taken away, so they had to keep financially supporting us with the bookshop. I don't think the image of people that people have in their minds of homeschooling, like your parents sitting down and just teaching you as if you were at a, a regular school, that's not really what our experience was. It was more like, you know, they couldn't provide opportunities for us to teach ourselves anymore in COVID is what I mean. Another reason was because of the school that I got into, which is the Conservatorium High School. I don't think I would have gone to school if it wasn't to that school specifically. It was uh, an opportunity to do music and stuff. So I don't think I would have <laughs> survived in, in a different environment that wasn't as specialised. <laughs> My name is Gabrielle Rose and I'm the co-artistic director of Fling Physical Theatre. 2018 and 19 were some of our biggest years. So Rob McCready, who's the other co-artistic director with Fling, he and I had just produced some major works, so Body and Environment. And we also did a really important project called My Black Dog, which was built around youth mental health. So projects were huge. We were about to tour. We had really high numbers in classes and everyone was buzzing. The younger kids, so the seven and eight, well, they were the most anxious. They're now in year 11, I think, but they were at the time that younger age group and they were aware of what was going on, listening to the news and they were the commercial media's job is to just engage people so they weren't really explaining things that well and you're getting a lot of questions about what does it mean is it going to end the like you know these what's the what's going to happen and then trying to break that down to them explaining what the death rates looked like at the time what the infection rates looked like where it was popping up how it was being managed and just trying to talk them through rationally and logically their worst case scenarios they'd imagine in their head weren't really what was happening and what wasn't likely to happen i guess here they're always happy to see, like, to just talk to an adult and engage with an adult and have that context given to them, I guess. Just to be, not reassured, but to have things put just into a framework so they can actually process it and understand it. Yeah. That helps them to be less anxious and be more comfortable with where things are.
For many young people, the COVID-19 pandemic came at a critical time of life, just as they were learning about themselves. The pandemic's impact on their connections and how they navigate the world, well, they're going to be felt for a long time yet. 2020, so much changed, like, socially. It moved my school strike activity online. I started organising on a national scale instead of local, which was very cool, but also... I did a lot of work because I couldn't go to school, so I was spending you know, six plus hours a day organising nationally, which was fun in terms of I met a lot of people from around the country and around the world even. I made a lot of online friends, but it was quite socially isolating physically, obviously, because we were in lockdown. For us, less so than some because we had a twin in the house at all times. Yeah, yeah that was um, <laughs> made it a little bit different, I think. But on top of just being socially isolated, keeping up with schoolwork, going into our senior years of school, Online. Honestly insane. Because in 2020, when we were all thrust onto online schoolwork and education, the teachers weren't prepared, the students weren't prepared, the platforms weren't prepared. And the teachers weren't really sure how to dish out the right amount of work. So we got every class worth of work every day, which is not what you would normally get in a six-period day. So taking, what what would it take, like eight or nine subjects? And we'd get eight or nine subjects a day. And I know for... Eden High especially for school, they were limited on resources, so they couldn't hand out laptops or anything for students. So students who didn't have laptops at home or didn't have enough laptops at home. I know me, Neve, and our older brother, we all shared one laptop. And our older brother was doing his year 12 HSC at the time. So we kind of prioritised his stuff. So we didn't get a whole lot of work done (laughs) in the first lockdown. Yet somehow we spent about eight hours a day online. Yeah. COVID was challenging but I was grateful that we were all in it together in the sense that I would talk to the team we had Ausdance who were incredible they're essentially like an advisory body and they were the ones liaising with the government of telling us what we could and couldn't do because dance sat in this really unusual little pocket of sector that wasn't even acknowledged so there were rules for gyms there were rules for schools there were rules for contact sport But dance, which has a lot of components of everything, was just forgotten about. So we had people asking, can we dance? Can we dance together? Do we have to be in studios? Do we have to wear masks? Do we not wear masks? The students I teach, they're digital natives in the sense that they're used to seeing and generating their own online content and being engaged in that two-way communication online. That's normal for them, but they, I guess they will have more control over when and where they do it versus a, a sterile Google Classroom. From my own personal experience, I think this, probably the, the state and local head of things fairly well, be more like the, more led to the, the closeness and that feedback loop that you have between voter or public and decision maker. And then I guess at the, at the federal level, my read on it was there was a little bit more Black responsibility maybe is pushed back to the state and local government outside of those border closures. There wasn't really much from day to day. You can't ignore obviously the, the job keeper and those sort of payments that were put in there. But I think a lot of it did fall to state and, and local government especially. Mm-hmm. 
we ran classes over Zoom. We had these two amazing people come and just join us prior to this, Beth Lane and Patrick Meesman, who are dance artists who were living in Melbourne, had gone through a lot of Zoom experience in Melbourne and then came up to join Fling and were like, yeah, we can run this, which was amazing because I think at the first steps of COVID, Rob and I just sort of shut down. Like we couldn't work out how to facilitate everything we do for our community because we would run, we were running about 15 to 20 classes a week to people everywhere. So we were lost in how to facilitate that. It came down to how we related to the rules. It was about people's concerns for safety. We endeavoured to socially distance, but children don't do that naturally. We need physical contact. So sort of trying to go, look, we want to be as safe as possible. We have a lot of pressure on us to keep ensuring that we can stay open. There was the risk that we might do the wrong thing, but there was nowhere to see these rules. And we were having conferences with people in Sydney who have a very different cultural context to what we have in regional Australia. And I think as well, our children were having this enormous double hand of trauma. So they had come from bushfires, they were terrified, Fling was their safe space. They would come in and be with us because we're fun. It's normal. It's, it's the thing they do. It's their identity. And then all of a sudden COVID ripped that away from them. So we just endeavored to get on Zoom, to like hang out, try and make a show on screen, like what the hell. But we did it because it was vital that they still had us somehow in their lives. But that wasn't for everyone as well. There were so many kids who wouldn't touch the screen because they were doing it at school all day. It was this really difficult mess of, um, yeah, just trying to get people together. And I remember like one of the first lessons we had, because I mean, God, COVID's gone for a long time. I'm just reflecting on like, there were these phases where it was sort of the beginning where nothing happened and then we went back and then it came again and it was like shut down, not, yes. But I remember one of our first sessions back together and all of us just looked around and went, oh my God, this is amazing. We love being here. We love being with each other. And I think there was a sense of gratefulness that was in the room that we got to be back. I don't want to take that for granted ever. (laughs) So the pivot literally happened overnight. We're at school and then we weren't. And then you just, we're now teaching through Google Classroom. I was pretty comfortable with that technology, but a lot of people weren't. They weren't exposed to it before. So there was the time needed to teach the teacher so they could get up to speed with how this worked and what it looked like in practice. When you're teaching, a lot of it is it's that mix of art and science. The art side of it is that human connection, which again, overnight, in a lot of ways, just evaporated because the connection between a comment on a Google Classroom or a five-minute Zoom with 40, 50 people is not the same as a one-to-one conversation with a student in the classroom or the playground or wherever you are, that human side of things really fell away quite quite quickly and you had to rely on connections you already had. If you're in year seven though, that was a bit of bad luck because you know, you were just sort of in a new school, yeah, a new environment, new cohort, new friend group. In terms of teaching, it was much more of a content creator and a poster. So it was a very different job. And then the parent side of it was, I mean, I was very lucky, very, very lucky that my wife took on that primary role. 
and it was frustrating for her because uh, it was frustrating for me because teaching your own children is very different to teaching someone else's children. Uh, you live with them. You can't. There's no bell ringing that you get to you know, decompress and go away in the staff room and, and regroup for the next session. You're just there, and it's just it's the dining table, it's the study table, it's the classroom table. So I was very lucky that my wife was able to take on that responsibility because then I was in the other room on my own computer trying to respond to any questions. So there was the guilt around not being able to support the students and then there was also the personal guilt about not being able to support your own children because you're supporting or in trying to support your students. We were lucky enough to have property that we could go outside on, so we were quite rural, though a lot of people were confined into places without any space to go outside. That would have really sucked for their mental health, especially. Mm. While it was great being rural, a drawback to it is our internet connection is not fantastic on a farm in the middle of nowhere because our family runs a business from home, so we had to ration our data usage to our older brother's HSC projects and my dad's work. We couldn't join in on a lot of the classroom calls and had to rely entirely on written work that was sent through. I feel we probably didn't gain as much as we would have had we attended Zoom or in-person school. Yep. Well, they tried to adapt our classes. They did, the best they they did really well. It's kind of amalgamated into a lot of reading. Oh, I know. <laughs> so much reading on screens. Oh, my <laughs> eye strain. Yeah. That's why I, like one of the main reasons I just do in the morning studying because I could not do a full day staring at a screen. Yeah. It was never going to happen. So I just figured I'm better off developing as a person, yep. <laughs> learning about being out in the garden. Yeah, I essentially went out, raked our garden, turned it into a big river of bark. It got me outside. Shout out to our art teacher. Not sure if we can say names on it, but what a legend. The second year of COVID, the school kind of got better at providing resources and the teachers kind of lowered their workload a bit. They handed out laptops. They got laptops from the government, which was very nice. So you could apply to borrow a laptop, which was great for year 11 and 12 us. We were a bit of a guinea pig year in terms of how to treat COVID successfully. I feel like I had a completely different lockdown experience. So I guess I had my younger brother there because he was just starting high school. He would have been year seven. But my day kind of looked like I'd get up early in the morning and I'd just log on, do my schoolwork and be done by, say, midday. And I would just, like, I'd spend the rest of the day doing pretty much whatever I wanted. So I worked on heaps of projects just at home my mum was there most of the time. Dad was still able to go into work. So we just worked on heaps of stuff like outside in the garden, but then also like lots of little projects I picked up, did heaps of art. Like I probably didn't get heaps of schoolwork done. I did all the work I as had a person, to. Though. Yeah, but I mentally, I actually felt that like my mental health was going pretty well through the lockdown. Yeah. I mean, that depends on like, I'm quite good at just being by myself. Like I don't have to be overly social. So that's probably why I thrived in that environment. <laughs> so it's very different to what you two explained. Yeah, it was interesting though, because we made a point of, we did daily phone calls just so we wouldn't lose social connection. Finally, we hear people reflect on the fallout from those early COVID years and how those impacts are felt today and will be felt into the future. I think it's harder to engage the children in classroom learning in a formal education setting that the almost three years really of interrupted learning from home 
and online and that hybrid learning model for a lot of them. So say if you're in year, year nine, that has been your entire high school experience. And if you're in year 12, even that was half your high school experience. So it's been a really interrupted schooling experience across whichever age you are. And then it's almost like a cultural loss of learning in the classroom. And so you're probably seeing more behavioral management issues. You're running out of time to actually teach the syllabus dot points because your focus is on almost relearning, reteaching how to behave in a or how what the expectations are and what the requirements are in a in a formal education setting. During the lockdowns, in terms of a schooling thing, there was an awareness from the government at the time was that we're not going to add anxiety to parents and students so that the engagement with content would look different to it would in the classroom and we'd focus on well-being versus meeting outcomes on an, an a syllabus stop point, which was, I think, probably the right call in hindsight. The other side of it is that they've missed, like they also missed that um, those social experiences. So the dead balls, the, the football tournaments, the mock trial, to- all those experiences, those rites of passages that you would have as a, you know, an adolescent moving through into adulthood, some of them have missed totally or they've started to pick up again now. So uh, the system expects them to snap back that we just we go back to life as normal because things had gone back to life as normal in many ways, but they're having trouble doing that as a cohort. There has been funding from government for, for COVID tutoring, which has helped in some places for intensive learning. But I guess it sort of feeds into a you know, multi-decade narrative of slipping education standards, less teacher numbers, and you know, government, not malaise, but I guess government inaction at, you know, at multiple levels on what to do and how to do it. We had our first assembly in, whole school assembly in almost three years this year. For many kids, that was their first time they'd had one in a school assembly. You know, how do you do? What do you do? Seem quite simple questions, but I guess when you've got, you know, that many kids in one place at one time, it's not something they've ever experienced before. It was hard not to like get fully down and depressed about this and be like, let's stop. But I just saw the kids and was like, okay, we've got to keep going because they rely on it. I rely on it. I've got a team who relies on fling operating. Our work's really important. Yeah, we had to keep going. We're just starting to rebuild. It feels like our class numbers are just starting to go up and people are feeling like they can participate again. And I guess we just sort of also approach illness in particular ways because like it's like these practical things of like you're putting on a show and you need everyone there for rehearsal and suddenly you can't. So we were in the studio for a week. Then the, nearly the entire team got COVID, including myself. We shut down for a week, but we had everything booked. We'd invest all our money. So then it was like, take a breath. Let's go. We're going to do this. We got everyone back in for two weeks. The kids were, the kids were tired but they did an incredible job and we have a beautiful film as a result, but it was that kind of stoicism and like pushing through. That was a big cost for everyone. Worth it, sure. That was not normal for us. Like our shows have this momentum and that's really important when working with young people. They need to know that the outcome is coming. And for many of our projects, we couldn't rely on that momentum and we couldn't promise them that, yep, you're going to be in front of an audience tomorrow. So all this work you've done is worth it. As leaders, how do we top up our resilience bucket? Like I feel exhausted. It's like decision fatigue and kind of every cancellation I cried because I was just like, I don't know how to do this and I don't know how to 
feel all the feelings of these little people who have like worked their butts off because the show is the payoff for them. Like it's the icing on the cake and we couldn't give it to them. That uncertainty, I think, has been a huge challenge for us. And it's sort of like you've got to dip into your reserves and, and go like, we can handle this. And I've seen the growth of their resilience as a result. I think I speak for a lot of people my age when I say that with COVID and the fires, we have gained a maybe a bigger perspective is the best way to put it. Like, you know, in a way where we're obligated to to stay strong and and always be aware of what's the most important things in our lives. Maybe that's a bit bleak <laughs> where we're battle hardened or something but uh, I understand more now that my family and my close friends are are what you know not not even they're the most important things that make that in my life they create my experience and they are they are the world that I'm in I feel like that grounds me and uh, lets me have the courage to to continue <laughs> yeah I'm really proud of my year all my friends and everyone that's around my age going through this I think that I have hope for, you know whatever troubles it may be that we can get through I picked up a lot of hobbies in lockdown, most of which was just social activism, but that kind of found a way into my life and I've continued doing that and that's what my career is going to be. I can see myself doing that now. Like I'm going to go study university and things like that. I didn't think that's what I was going to do, but I found a whole other pathway for myself, which is scary, also really exciting. I'm so used... Can you get used to change? Is that a thing? Those years were so turbulent that we kind of had to be. Yeah, you had to kind of adapt to change. Otherwise, you were just going to kind of break a little bit. I feel I'm better adapted to, say, manage a crisis situation now, which is what I'd love to do because I'm so used to sudden changes, plans being thrown out the window, that I've got like a good amount of adaptability now. So I think definitely my resilience has been built up. I feel like I've always kind of known that I... I wouldn't say I prefer my company, but like I'm pretty happy with just being by myself. And that's something like I'm more than happy to go out and socialise and I love having friends and all that. But at the same time, I was more than happy to just be at home doing my own kind of thing, going out every now and then to go get some plants. And I'm happy to just be self-sustaining. And I guess I probably did expect that because I've always kind of been a bit like that. Again, I never really thought about it, reflecting back on it. I'm like, yeah, that kind of is who I am. So that's probably why I handled it how I did. I feel like our age group was going to get very used to like bouncing around different situations because 2019 was the fires, 2020 was COVID, 2021, 2022, lockdowns, and we had floods, floods drought, and then we had more floods. The toilet paper crisis. For my age group, it was just a lot of once-in-a-lifetime events. Oh, my God. We got, like, nine once-in-a-lifetime events. It was wild. Now we're in a rental crisis and And a recession. Like, now it's all on the financial side. I think we have built up a skin. We have built up a a resilience (laughs) because now it's like, 
<laughs> okay. Oh <my> God. <laughs> Take that one off the list. It's Bingo. Like breakdown kind of stuff. It's like, we'll get through it. Yep. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. You've been listening to Education, the fourth episode in Hope Lost Resilience, a Beaker Valley Shire Library production. You can find all our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. A huge thanks to all those stories you heard. Clinton Meredith, Luca Yee, Gabrielle Rose, Freya Ockershaw, Neve Ockershaw and Fionn Roberts-Thompson. All these interviews are part of the Beaker Valley Shire Library's Oral Histories Project, Talking Together. You can hear or read the full interviews, transcripts and more in the Beaker Valley Shire Library's catalogue. Go to library.beakervalley.newsouthwales.gov.au or if you're in the Beaker Valley, just pop into the library and ask a librarian. If this episode has brought anything up for you, you can reach Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're in the Beaker Valley and would like to connect with mental health services, you can call free 1800 011 511, 24 hours, 7 days. You can find full links to resources in our show notes. The music you heard was Rocks and Snow by David Ross MacDonald. You can find his work on Bandcamp at davidrossmacdonald.bandcamp.com. The poem was Aquanellius is a Fallacy by Gabrielle Journey Jones. The music was Rainbow by Vortex. We'd also like to thank the Candelo Roadshow Radio Hour, Community Radio 93.7 Edge FM and Headspace Beaker. Additional thanks to our transcribers, Joe Osler, Alexander Masika, Trish Dive, Janet Reynolds, Project Lead and Management, Linda Albertson and Skeeter Val, Extra Organisational Help, Anita Coakley, Carla McDonald and Emma Woolley and Vanessa Barrett. Web Design, Natalie Martin-Remmett. Scripting and podcast production, Shona Hawks. Principal production, including audio and sound design, is by Craig Garrett. This program is part of the Bega Valley Shire Library's Talking Together Oral Histories Project, funded under the Joint Australian Government, New South Wales Government Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements 2018 through the New South Wales Reconstruction Authority. The views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of the New South Wales Government.